0: Let's pray. God, in these next few minutes, I pray that your will will be done. I pray for access to where people are in their lives and in their faith and their fears and their frustrations. Pray for sort of a divine access to those things, even as the word is being preached this morning. Just pray for a connection to to where people are as they sit in, in these seats today. And I pray that even as the message is being preached, that you will connect dots that I haven't even foreseen. I trust you with this message, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Genesis chapter 2. First part of this week, some families, three families, mine being one of those, and a group of youth headed out to youth camp at a place called Camp Eagle in the uh, hill country, Texas hill country near Rock Springs, about an hour outside of Kerrville. Something we've been planning on talking about the last uh, year almost working toward this event of taking our youth out there. and Some things unfolded over the course of the week that really made for um, what we would call kind of a combination of really neat experiences and a combination of disappointment in one event. For those of you who have been in the hill country, you know that it's some pretty rugged territory. If you drive through the hill country, it's hilly, obviously, but if you walk through the hill country or you hike through the hill country or ride a bike or whatever, these grapefruit-sized rocks everywhere, grapefruit, watermelon, orange, all the size that would twist an ankle, and all the size that would make for some really difficult movement. And we spent, I don't know, a month there, I think. Actually, I think it was like three days, <laughs> three days in just really rugged territory. And um, it was like 106 degrees every day. You know, it was just hot. And for me, the experience was a disappointment, not all in all, because we really saw some amazing things, learned some amazing things about ourselves and our youth. But it was a disappointment in that Christy and I and Scott, to some degree, have been invested in this camp for the last couple of years. A couple of years ago, it was probably three or four years ago by now, I came in contact with this camp through a friend of ours that lives in Kerrville who's a big mountain biking family. And this is a big mountain biking sort of mecca out here at Camp Eagle. So I came in contact with the camp and got to know the camp director, a guy named Anthony Scott. Got to know um, a guy that is sort of in charge of the thing that we participated in named Chris McWaters. Um Really neat, neat folks. We got to know their hearts. We got to spend some time with them even before we ever stepped foot out there for any sort of camp experience. And then two years ago in the fall, Scott and I, And Christy and Lindsay and our kids went out there and taught for a few days. We did sort of a mini version of What is the Church series, which is sort of a challenging sermon to preach to a bunch of camp folk because they live 25 miles from the closest town. So a lot of them found themselves in a place where they were sort of doing church out there. And they realized from our time there that they needed more than that. So some of them connected to a church through that experience. Then, last year, sort of as a product of some of the things that we've been walking through as a church, Christy and I went back out there with our kids and taught this time on what is the gospel. What even is the gospel? How easy it is to preach the gospel, to believe the gospel, and never really even get to the gospel. How easy it is to have all the ingredients there and to miss the connection to an alien righteousness. That we wear by no favor of our own, but by Christ's grace and mercy alone, God's grace and mercy alone. How easy it is to have all the ingredients there and to miss the mark. This is what we taught on last fall to the staff. So the reason this experience was challenging for us, or I guess a disappointment for me, was to find that what we taught on in the fall didn't make the connection in this summer. We were, for the first time, really being on the user end of this camp experience at Camp Eagle, and we noticed and realized a real disparity between what we believe their hearts are, what we taught on in the fall, and what seed actually hit the soil this week. It was a severe disappointment. If I were to characterize it, if you want to do a little research on what this looks like, you can Google this, actually. I've since written to the camp director and gotten a really encouraging response from him. I told him that it sounded and seems like moralistic therapeutic deism. If you wonder what that is, write it down and Google it Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. It's sort of this God that's sort of therapy for us. You know, you get life improvement, helps us when we need help. And that was sort of the central message where man's at the center of this gospel story. The preaching was characterized by testimony with Jesus and some, you know, light Scripture references here and there, but largely testimony. Um, So it was a disappointment. That combined with just the experience itself of hiking over rugged terrain for a few days with, I can talk about Luke freely because he's not here this morning, I usually talk pretty freely about him anyway, but with two kids that are visually impaired, one especially visually impaired, it was a beating, a beating for Luke. It started on day one when we we're all kind of hiking together, and I pulled the Adele boys and the Jones boys to the side. I said, boys, I need your help with this. I need to, this needs to be a team. And they're like, okay, all right, cool. But nobody's ever seen Luke away from this building or away from our house, are in that environment, no less, where when you're fully sighted, you're likely going to fall down from time to time. And we're out there. We're five minutes into a little walk over to our first thing, and Luke walks right through a fire pit with rocks that are, you know, knee high. He hits so hard, he's getting to the size where he's a kind of a preteen boy, you know, young man size, and he hit like a bag of rocks, and all of us just kind of went... And that was a taste of things to come for the rest of our time there. Right now, he's with Christy and and Evan at the beach. But he's got scars, you know, scrapes all over his shins because he took a beating, took a beating. So that's factored into disappointment of the teaching, watching how Luke managed that terrain, watching, too, Scott McCullough manage that terrain. For those of you who know Scott, you know that this last winter... He got an artificial hip. An artificial hip. And he's hiking around this terrain on an artificial hip. And knowing that right beside him is Laurie McCullough, who's also taking medicine for a heart condition. I think Scott, you know, Jeff and Geneva were fine. They all don't have an excuse. But everybody else had lots of excuses and it all just kind of weighed heavy on me as I'm kind of processing not only the experience but the time since then. And then I come back to what I would just call stuff. The stuff of ministry, the stuff of life. Come back to Greenville on Friday. Took an extra day in Kerrville. We visited with our friends there. I come back to Greenville and just facing really Lots of email, lots of text messages dealing with what I would call stuff. And what's embedded within that stuff is things that we work through that are hard having to do with ministry. Um, Missionaries going through tough experiences. Families going through hard things. Um, Wisdom in how to guide people through those sort of things. I come back to that stuff stuff. Then on top of that, I'm thinking, man, we really, <laughs> I need to get with the other elders and we got to work through some of this stuff. And then as we're all text messaging and emailing each other, we realize that it's not going to happen for the next couple of weeks because everybody's busy and not busy doing stupid stuff, busy just being men with lives and vacations and families and they travel or they work or they have things that keep them away. So I'm like, man, Luke's got wounds all over him. Scott's recovering, Lori's recovering. Now, they're recovering in St. John, so it's hard to really call that a difficult thing. I'm dealing with what investment did we really make in Camp Eagle? Was there really a show? Did it find purchase anywhere? We're dealing with stuff, dealing with the difficulty of scheduling the men that God has ordained to kind of help work through the stuff. And then I'm also dealing with I need some energy to work through stuff. I mean, really, because I'm not like robo-pastor. I would like to be like this steely-eyed, mm next, next, next issue, next problem. God says, blam, there's the medicine, move on. <laughs> I mean, I'm made of the same stuff that y'all are made of. And I'm like, man, I get tired. The other elders get tired. We're like, oh, whew, I need energy. And all these things also I'll just say all these things left me ready to preach a message this morning that I'm not going to preach because my heart wasn't ready to preach it. It's the conflict series. The sermon's prepared. It's sitting on a chair at my house. Up until yesterday afternoon, I was planning on preaching it. In fact, I even got up this morning saying, no, I'm going to go ahead and go forward with it. But I couldn't. I couldn't because the Lord took me to a series of dots that he connected over my studies yesterday and kind of processing things that left me really encouraged at a time where I needed it. I went to bed last night thinking, okay, I'll, I'll preach that tomorrow morning. I'll preach this new message that he's given me. Or no, actually, I said, you know, I'll go to bed and I'll decide in the morning. I'm going to get up at five and I'll decide then. I've got these two messages, one prepared since 5 p.m. yesterday, 6 p.m., the other that's been prepared this finished all week. So my alarm goes off at 5, and I'm like, I'm not getting up. I killed it to about 6.30, and I got up at 6.30, and I'm like, well, it's decided. I'm going to have to go with the one that I've already prepared, because that one is just solid, you know? That one has been worked on all week, so that was ready to go, but I couldn't even pick it up. I don't want to make like some sort of hocus-pocus out of this, like, uh, Lord, like a tractor beam took me to this other message. But I couldn't pick up this conflict series message because I felt like the Lord, maybe it's just for me. I need to preach this message that he's sort of preached to me in the last few hours. So that's where we're going. We're not touching the series on conflict, although this would have to do with sort of the challenges of working through conflict. This little message I've titled, Nothing's Ever Fixed and the Work Continues. Debbie Downer sort of message, <laughs> but a necessary when I needed it, so maybe you'll need it. It has four parts, and none of them are really cumbersome. The first one will probably the most elaborate, but none of them are really difficult. The work is never done. We'll tend it till we die. <laughs> I came to church on a great Sunday. It's going to be a real pick-me-up. <laughs> Secondly, faith is work, and the work can only be fueled by faith. And faith doesn't have eyeballs. I'll explain all this, and this is just kind of give you a heads up where we're going. Um, The third part is work must be fueled by the only true finished work. And the fourth part is maybe why we get it wrong. Okay, so let's launch off into this mess. It's likely to be a mess, but maybe God will use it. When I'm looking at the mountain of things, first we're going to talk about the work is never done. We're going to tend to it till we die. When I'm looking at the mountain of things that we need to work through as elders, I'm just talking about my mountain. You have your mountain, I bet. When I'm looking at the mountain of things that I need to, with the other elders, work through, when I'm looking at the mountain of things that I need to tend to in my home, some people buy new homes, and that stuff wears out too, so that's bad news, but... Our home we bought it's probably i don't know I think it was eight years old when we bought it, so it's fifteen no seventeen and stuff is just breaking I mean stuff just needs to like white be painted and cleaned, and we have a garbage disposal that's been barrel broken for two years I mean two years, so I you know. I'm thinking about the mountain of stuff that I need to work through as an elder with my other elder teammates, the mountain of stuff I have around the house to work on. I'm thinking about the mountain of stuff that I want to work through with my children. I want to work through some books, you know, like some manly books, you know, to equip them, you know, raise them up, you know. And I'm thinking about, you know, I found that you can go buy the book and it just doesn't get read. It just, you know... You still have to do the work of reading it, but I have that work. I have the weekly relentless work of sermon preparation. I mean, Sunday is always coming. (laughs) It's crazy. That's one of the hardest things for me and for Christy and for my family is the relentless week after week after week after a week. I'm thankful that in our at Crosspoint, we have other folks that can and do stand and deliver to give me a break from the pulpit, because it's relentless. Sunday is always coming, no matter whether we had a lot of stuff going on, no matter if it's a holiday. But it's work. You need to know that usually sermons don't show up at 5 o'clock on Saturday. <laughs> I told Scott, I said, my fear would be that somebody really pays attention to this sermon because they... Mm. The Holy Spirit was really involved in this one because it showed up on five o'clock on Saturday. And I'm thinking, don't go there because he was there, went on a sermon that's prepared on Monday and all week long too. It's week after week after week, the weekly relentless work of preparing and preaching God's Word. And then there's this weekly work that I know Steve and Scott and Brad would share with me, the deacons share with me to some degree, the weekly work of feeling responsible for how others do their work. So, it's not just you and your family. You're feeling responsible for everybody, and it makes for a mountain of work that is a lot to bear. So, I found encouragement just in realizing and remembering the Lord taking me to the reality that It's supposed to be work. It seems like a no-brainer, but it's not. Y'all are in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to this, starting in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground... And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word keep, we could also kind of think about the word tend. Before the fall of man, before Adam and Eve sinned, man was made for work. And the work is a tending type of work. It's like agrarian type of work that's never really done. What would have been cool to me is if he placed him in a garden of cool old land cruisers where he could just fix them all the time and he would fix them and then he would drive them around because they're fixed. And it's done. You put a check in the block. That 1979 FJ40 Land Cruiser is fixed, ready to roll. But he didn't. He put him in a garden where you work and the work is never really done. It's tending kind of work. I like the checking the block mechanic sort of work, but the tending sort of work, is just hard to quantify. It's harder to really check the block, but that's the kind of work before the fall anyway. Let's look on the next chapter, chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. This is after the fall, after Adam and Eve descend, let's see if anything's changed. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He's still working. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Before and after the fall, man was working. And the kind of work is the difficult to quantify, difficult to measure, tending kind of work. And you know what? The rest of this book is made up of one story after another that has to do with work. Think of how many Christ's parables have to do with a servant and a worker or someone tending to something while their master's away. They're all having to do, not all of them, many of them, are having to do with Work think too about how Christ showed up. He showed up and worked as a carpenter. And then he did the work of ministry and the work of a Savior. This entire book is just one big story of either God's work or our work. We've been working since the beginning. I would like to think, and this is oftentimes sort of a an unimplied message in the Christian message, I would like to think that once you follow Christ and you are saved by grace through faith, that the work is over. Sometimes there's sort of that implied message. Maybe when we preach a series of sermons. Here, you go do these things and the work will be over and it will be fixed and you can move on. That land cruiser will roll. It doesn't work that way. Adam, or us, through the work of a new Adam, is restored to the garden, and the work just continues. But the work continues in a fallen world that fights back. Just because you've come to faith in Christ does not mean that you will now find the wind to your back and sails that are always furrowed and you go the exact direction you want to go and then it's easy. In fact, it may be the other way around. In fact, I think it's likely the other way around. The work has now just begun. I find that all of these things are work. Marriage. <laughs> right. Yes. Jessica said, amen. Uh, lots of people could say, amen. And it doesn't mean you don't love your wife. I'm not saying that because Christy's not here this morning. I would say it if she were here and she would agree. Marriage is work. Not just marriage, parenting. Parenting is work. Life is work. Friendships are work. Work, obviously, is work. Being a steward with the things God has given you to be a steward over is work. Your bodies, that's work. That's work. And you think about the kind of work, the tending kind of work. You can't go out and run three miles this afternoon and think, okay, tomorrow I'll be in shape. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be tended to. If the heavens declare the glory of God and day-to-day pours forth speech, we have things surrounding us every single day that pour forth speech revealing to us what faithfulness looks like and its work and its attending kind of work, like exercise, our diet. If you eat a salad for lunch today, I'm sorry, by tomorrow you're not going to be all healthy and thin and lean and svelte. It's work, and it's got to be tended to. If you take a vitamin, you're not going to feel better tomorrow. If you think you feel better, it's really because there might be some sort of caffeine in it or something that makes you feel better. You don't feel better overnight from a vitamin. Day-to-day pours forth speech. All of this stuff is work. It's work to be a good steward with your body. It's work to be a good steward with your money. You think that comes easy for some people? It's not easy for anybody. It's work. It's work to be a good steward with your time. For everyone, it's work. It's work making investments, quality investments in other people. Work. Tending kind of work. It's work raising children. I think I mentioned that. Well, it's okay with mentioning that twice. It's work preaching week after week after week. It's work hearing week after week after week. It doesn't hurt my feelings to point that out. i have sat where you sit, and I sit there periodically. It's work to hear it and really hear it, as it's work to preach it and really preach it. It's all work. It's work to live with, and love people who are different from you and see things different from you. That's one of the hardest works for me. I want everybody to think exactly the way I do. But it's work to walk with people that see things different than you, it's work to live peaceably with others, it's work to work out conflict with other pre- people the first thing we need to realize as God's people is realize that we were made for work and I don't know of anything that's not work. The only thing I find that's not work is sin. I don't have to work at sin. It comes very natural for me. But anything that's not sin, anything that is good, that's worth going after is work. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is like Debbie Downer book, Extraordinaire. I love this book because I identify with the preacher. The preacher is the guy that's written this book. Uh, Koheleth is the the Hebrew for it. Likely Solomon. We don't know that for sure it's Solomon. It says the son of David, but it could have been um, a grandson, great-grandson, who identifies himself as son of David. But likely this was Solomon who wrote this book identifies himself as the preacher, which I kind of enjoy because I, I, okay, I can identify with this guy. He's got some really, really sweet words of encouragement in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Listen to this. You're going to love this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. That's the right passage. I'm reading in the place I meant to read in. I didn't like, oops, I read in the wrong spot. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Vexation is a good word. Vexation means anger. His work is is, is sort of anger-inducing. It's troubling, it's frustrating, it's irritating is what he's saying here. His work is hard. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. As I read this little excerpt from this this preacher, Solomon Likely, I said, man, he captured my feelings this week. He captured my feelings, that one word, vexation, how I'm scratching my head over how Camp Eagle could land where they landed. After all, I showed up to save the day previous winter. How could you guys do this? How could my children sin in any possible way after I've taught them and trained them in righteousness? How could I need to bring something up more than once in a sermon? Why would we need to hear things more than once often? it could be vexing he captured how i've been feeling lately and how frankly i often feel he captured the yoke that i wear thursday friday and saturday of every week that i preach on sunday the yoke that i wear on thursday friday and saturday is is the message prepared is it message have i done the work that i need to do is my heart prepared is it potent is it going to change people's lives That's the yoke I wear every single Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that I preach. Saturdays too. He put a word on the frustration that I feel when I don't see things happen as fast or as dramatically as I want them to. I feel vexed, irritated, annoyed, and frustrated. That's how he characterizes the work but listen what he says in the next verse verse 24 he says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment look at this word this is such a cool word in his toil there's nothing better than he should eat or drink or find enjoyment in his toil i'm not wired that way naturally Maybe you are. Maybe some of y'all just love to work. You whistle, you know, while you work. And, you know, you sing like, everybody clean up, clean up. (laughs) But I don't work that way. (laughs) I don't naturally find enjoyment in my toil. Look, he goes on to say, this also I saw is from the hand of God Enjoyment in your toil. For apart from him, who can eat or, or have enjoyment or find enjoyment? The next chapter, he kind of says the same thing in a different way. Chapter three, verse 22. I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Those words, just that two-letter word in, Stuck on me. I find that I find most enjoyment when the work is done. In fact, I find at times I only find enjoyment when the work is done. I was thinking about this yesterday afternoon. I'm sitting in my backyard. The grass is cut, freshly hewn grass. The aroma is wafting in my nose. The sprinkler is going, and it's on the last spot. We don't have a sprinkler system, so I'm moving the sprinkler every 20 minutes, like my whole life. (laughs) My circadian rhythm is in tune with 20 minutes. Oh, I need to, excuse me, I need to leave, go change the sprinkler. (laughs) I'm sitting there, and the sprinkler is in its last spot. The grass is cut. The flowers are all watered, and they're mostly alive. (laughs) I'm sitting by the pool. Most of the leaves are out of the pool. And I'm thinking to myself, now I can enjoy this. And then I'm thinking, why didn't I find enjoyment in getting there? God wants us to find enjoyment in the work. In the toil, what does he say? I saw this is from the hand of God. I find by practice that I'm more happy on Monday or Sunday afternoon after the seed is sown than on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday when I am working at getting it prepared to sow. I don't know if you're wired that way, but that's the way I'm wired. But yet the preacher is connecting to some wisdom here where he's saying this is from the hand of God to find joy in the actual work. In the work of marriage, find joy. Joy doesn't come when it's just all sorted out because guess what? It never gets all sorted out. If you're married, you think everything's just all sorted out and perfect, then what, what time is it? There's bedtime. There's morning. We're people. We... Disappoint each other. We let each other down. The joy is in the work of marriage, not when you get to some perceived Cancun. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something. St. John, where the McCulloughs are. (laughs) You can have a fight in St. John. There is no, it's all a mirage. I mean, we certainly work toward it, but we learn to find joy in the work of marriage. Now when you think you have things all sorted out, you learn to find joy in the list: life. Find joy in the difficulties of life. You find joy in the difficulties of friendships. One of the things the Lord has blessed me with is the stupidest little saying that I find myself saying so often over the course of the week. Brad has a version of it. Brad's version is, "Bless His heart." Mine is, "People are funny. I find myself saying it over the course of the week, all the time. Well, people are funny. Learning to find joy in the unpredictability of people, including yourself. Learning to find joy in how funny friendships can be. Learning to find joy in the work, learning to find joy in being a good steward with your body, being a good steward with your time, being a good steward with your money, learning to find joy in the investments that you make in others, learning to find joy in raising your children. This is a good diagnostic thing. If you're just all the time anxious to get rid of the kids and go on date night or go on get out of there and just forget about your kids, if you never enjoy any time with them, you may be missing out on the joy of parenting. If you're always needing a break, you're missing out on it. You may be living like I could potentially live. Once that seed is sown, then I'll find joy. Once that Land Cruiser is fixed and rolled, then I'll find joy, forgetting that, oh, it's never fixed. My kids haven't arrived, and they won't. And the joy is in the work. The joy is in the tending their little hearts, their little plots of soil. Yes, you have to say things 8,000 times. Find the joy in it and laugh to yourself. Little people are funny. Aren't they funny? They're little versions of me. And I'm funny. I know it to other people. You find joy in those sort of things. Joy in the preaching of it. Joy in the hearing of it. Joy in serving alongside people that are different from you. The Lord has shown and continues to show me how much I need to be serving alongside people who are different from me and see things even by nature different than I do. Y'all should be thankful for the fact that we have four elders and none of us are exactly alike. Just like parents, you should be thankful that you have two parents. If you have two, if the Lord's blessed you in that way, and you can still have two parents that are different. You don't want them to be exactly alike. Because the two will come together with a wisdom that's greater than the sum of their parts. Same is true in the elders. I don't want any of these guys to think exactly the way I think because you'll all be in trouble if that's true. Finding joy in our differences, that's hard for me. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 9. This is just so crazy to me. Now, this, this is the first of four places I told you we were going this morning, and I told you this is the most cumbersome, at least time-wise. The next ones will move quicker. So if you're kind of doing a little marker in your head, like, man, this is still on the first thing, this is long. This is going to be like a mega-sermon. It's not. It's, um, I, I'll set you free from that fear. Fear, because say what I know it is. 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to this passage. This is a fresh passage for us. We've talked through this and worked through this. Some are continuing to work through it to some degree. And it's something actually that I've been preparing for and studying for the sermon I was to preach today. That I will preach next Sunday. So this is why it's familiar. And follow me in this for a minute. You'll understand why I'm bringing this up. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is writing to a church that he planted. Listen to what He says, Beginning in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. We do not have to, or do we not have the right to eat and drink? I'm talking about us as the apostles or the, you know, the planting team that's with him. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord or Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? What he's going to deal with here in the next few minutes, I keep sitting on my cord or something. This thing keeps going off. What he's gonna deal with here in the next few minutes is paying a preacher. Paying like a staff elder. And this is why we've been talking about it as the elders. Listen to what he says. It's interesting. You might find that we're sort of Corinthian here. If you carry some baggage here, and I'll save this comment for later. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He's likening himself as a soldier, as a planter and preacher. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? He's implying, shouldn't you provide? And the sower? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The metaphor there is he's the ox. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, y'all hear this and wonder for a moment if you're Corinthian. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? What he's saying there is, if someone does your dry cleaning and you owe them some money and you have no problem with that, Why wouldn't you give someone some money and provide for them if they're giving you so much more than a clean pair of clothes? I was thinking about this, man. Are we sort of Corinthian, not even realizing it, kind of comparing notes with the other elders? I think between the four of us, I would estimate, the four of us probably in the last five years have done... I don't know, this may be a safe estimate, seven or eight weddings. What's normative for me in a wedding is I might get paid enough to clean my suit afterwards. I might. And meanwhile, I don't make a big deal out of it, but I can't help but wonder, well, how much do they pay the cake guy? <laughs> what does a cake cost? Seriously. I mean $500,000. But somebody who's sewing into someone else's life. Now some of our elders have said, I don't want to be paid. If you're a member of the body, I don't want to, I don't want you to pay me anything. That's certainly I'm just using this as an illustration. Are we Corinthian and think, oh, <laughs> "That's just the pastor. His time has no value." But the cake maker now, his time has a value. Are the photographer Seriously, Paul is writing to this church that apparently doesn't want to give him a plug nickel when he's sewing into them, and he's saying, you know what? I'm going to give up my right, and I'm going to go make tents. I'm not going to let your faithlessness get in the way of my ministry to you, so I'll go make tents. We've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That's pretty cool from Paul. Paul says, That's okay. You don't have to pay me what you paid a cake maker. You don't have to pay me anything. The Lord will provide for me. I'm going to keep sewing into your life. The thing that struck me as I studied that passage. Another one, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. The thing that struck me was Paul's disposition toward the Corinthian church. In 1558, he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers. The Corinthian church is such a difficult church. I don't know if there's a church in our Bible that's more difficult than the Corinthian church. The only thing that's consistent about the Corinthian church is that they're inconsistent and that they're worldly. And you can bank on that. And Paul calls them his beloved brothers. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There it is. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I read that passage in light of the condition of the Corinthian church, and I can't help but wonder if Paul is like coaching himself. I've got to deal with the Corinthian church. Lord, please teach me to abound in your work. Remind me that my labor with this church is never in vain with this difficult church, this Corinthian church. Remind me that it's work and that it's never in vain. I can't help but wonder if he's coaching himself. The Corinthians were a soup sandwich. They were a mess. And yet here's Paul's disposition. Okay, you won't provide for me while I'm preaching the word. Later on in that passage, it says, even the Lord said whoever preaches the gospel should be provided for as they're preaching the gospel. He says, but you know what? That right that sits here squarely, clearly, that's a right, I hold loosely to it. Christ and you are more important to me than even that right. Paul loved this messed up church. Paul loved them, and it had to have been work to love these guys. I'm reading passages like this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I'm going, really? Paul? you give thanks for the Corinthian church? That's crazy. 2 Corinthians 1.7. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. Maybe by the second letter, some of that love would be cooled a little bit. But by the second letter, it's still, my hope for you, our hope for you is unshaken. And then by the end of this letter, in 1215, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I don't care how difficult a church someone might have, it does not compare to the Corinthian church. However challenging a ministry may ever be for anyone, it couldn't compare to the ministry to the Corinthian church. And I look at Paul's disposition toward them and how loosely he holds to his rights, how he loves them. He never stops giving thanks for them how he would gladly be spent for their souls and i'm like lord i want that sort of resolve in the work i want to have that sort of gentleness and love with people that don't see things the way i do i want to have that sort of gentleness and love with people who seem to ride the roller coaster of faith where they have a problem and they love jesus and then the problem's gone and jesus is nowhere To be found in their lives. I want to have a gentleness with folks who treat God like he's the heavenly bellboy and speak truthfully with them. But I want to have that sort of gentleness that Paul had with this Corinthian church. All of these things from these last little sections that we've looked at all of these things are true, and no one verse reveals the truth completely. They work together to paint this picture that everything is work. We're made for it. Work is hard, and we're to find joy in it. And ministry, even ministry, is work. Being an elder is work. Being a deacon is work. Being a shepherd is work. Shepherding a family is work. Being a staff member is work. Being a worshiper who's really engaged and is known and knowing others, like Natalie shared, is work. And we're to find joy in it, and we tend to it, and it's never really done. That land cruiser never really rolls this side of glory. We just continue Attend to it, and it's hard. I don't know anyone who's walking faithfully who's walking easily. If some people make it look easy, I don't know how they do it. They just do. I'm not saying they're fakers, they might be, but I'm not going to generalize like that because some people can maybe just make it look easy. But faithfulness is not easy. The journey of faith isn't easy. At times it's a skip. Sometimes it's a stroll, but usually it's a plod. A plod. And we need to find enjoyment in the plod. Turn to Hebrews 11. Here's where things are going to pick up pace-wise. This work, this faith thing that is work can only be fueled by faith. Okay, if that sounds like a mess, it'll get sorted out here in a second. Okay, that didn't make any sense. That's okay. It'll get sorted out in a second. Faith is work, and the work is fueled by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 listen to this Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen By definition that's what faith is That's why God through his I think through his mercy has kept us from having some of the evidence that those who don't believe so adamantly say show me Faith, by definition, is believing in something that you can't see. It's hoping for something that you don't necessarily have this black and white proof of. This chapter, the rest of this chapter, is going to be illustration after illustration of people who walked by faith, not by what they saw. Listen to it. was taken up so that he should not see death. The reason he was taken up and didn't see death is because he didn't walk by sight in his life. He walked by faith. You see lots of comparisons here. seeing or seeking. Enoch didn't walk by sight, but walked by faith so he never saw death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was committed as having pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, though he had never seen a raindrop. He's not being fueled by what he sees. He's being fueled by what he knows by faith to be true. The judgment's coming. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, a place he never saw. Natalie referenced that passage this morning, or at least if she wasn't thinking of it, I was thinking of it. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going by faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There's story after story after story here of people who walked by faith, not by sight, because sight is not good fuel for faith, it's not good fuel for the work. A couple weeks ago, Marie Webb got up and shared her testimony, and it was a glimpse for me, and my heart sang. There are other glimpses that God gives me, a glimpse that I might see in my kids of God at work. Katie Hackney was a glimpse to me at small group the other night, seeing what God's doing in her life. Clint Stevens is a glimpse to me to see how God's growing you as a husband and a father and a worshiper. There are glimpses in this body as we walk. Corey Pfeiffer, you're another glimpse walking together with you on Mondays. There are glimpses in our body, seeing how some of our youth moved with each other these last few days. Glimpses that I can become dependent on. But you know what? They don't make good fuel. I'm thankful for them, but they don't make good fuel because they ebb and flow. And if there's an ebb, And I run out of gas, the proof may be there that I'm too dependent on them. I'm not supposed to walk according to the glimpses, although I'm thankful for them. I'm supposed to walk according to faith. It says I'm not going to ride the roller coaster of church attendance. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a whole lot easier to preach when there's a room full of you than when there's 10 of you on on a holiday. I'll just tell you, because the preacher has eyeballs Ooh, and he's looking around, going, Ugh. I spent myself on this sermon and nobody's here. Will anybody even hear it? We're prone to walking by sight, yet, these heroes were fueled by faith. Their work was fueled by faith, and our work has to be fueled by faith as we plod, not dependent on the glimpses. Faith makes for such a better fuel. Because faith doesn't have to see. Faith doesn't have to see peace to continue. Paul didn't see it in the Corinthian church. He saw division and worldliness, yet he continued. Faith doesn't have to see righteousness to continue. Faith doesn't have to see conquest. We're really making a difference here. Faith doesn't have to see growth. Faith doesn't have to see change. Faith is living for a future city, and the work doesn't have to have an immediate return. Faith looks somewhere other than what's in front of them. Luke, telling something else on Luke and Evan, they both have a machine that's called a CCTV. It's a lot like when I was growing up at the library, we had the Dewey Decimal System, and we had a microfish. This thing that's like this little tray that you would put this little tiny little transparency thing in there that had all this data on it, the Dewey Decimal System. and You'd stick it in there. It didn't make that noise. And you'd slide it in there, and this screen would show you where all the books were And if you, if you were familiar with the Dewey Decimal System. That may still be the deal. I haven't been in a library in a while. <laughs> but the principle there for the kids is they actually have this platform where they work, and they do stuff. Luke used to build his Legos underneath the CCTV where he's not looking at what he's doing, he's looking at something else. He's looking at the screen. It's the most unnatural thing for me. If I were to sit and try and do it, I couldn't do it because my eyes want to go, what am I looking at? It's a great illustration that if you want to be fueled in the work to continue plotting well, then you have to have your eyes not fixed on the outcome or the product because the product ebbs and goes and flows. But instead, your eyes need to be fixed on Christ and his finished work. Your eyes have to be fixed on something else. Because you might be Isaiah. You might be worse, Jeremiah. Some of y'all read your Old Testament. You know what I'm talking about. Listen to this passage from Isaiah. I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to listen to it. Is crazy. The passage is so misunderstood so often. Isaiah has seen the throne room vision of the Lord. He's looked for a crack in the floor to hide because of his white hot holiness. And it, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? You may have heard this sermon, priest, on a sort of a missionary sort of emphasis Sunday Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Yes, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, okay, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? How long do I have to go be about a ministry where my kids just continually and perpetually don't listen to me? How long do I have to be about a ministry where people just completely and perpetually and continually don't listen to me? How long do I have to be about a ministry where I will preach and teach relentlessly and yet their ears will grow deaf and their hearts will grow hard and their eyes will grow blind? You might be Isaiah. Your work might be the work of Jeremiah. Or maybe your work will be the work of Noah, preaching to a bunch of people who are just going to eventually die. Or maybe you'll have the work of Jonah. You don't even have to prepare a sermon. You just give an eight-word sermon, and all of Nineveh repents and falls on their knees wearing dust cloth and ashes crazy eight word sermon you would, uh, you would hope for that this morning you didn't get that did you <laughs> never <laughs> eight word sermon crazy faith is a trust that god will do what he'll do when he'll do it and for his glory and it's fuel for the hard work you're watching the cctv not your hands you're watching the cross God and knowing that he's always at work and that he's going to do what he's going to do in his timing. He grows the church, not me. He draws people back to him, not me. He grows Marie Webb's, Katie Hackney's, Clint Stevens, Corey Pfeiffer's, not me. (laughs) What a load off. I needed that reminder, but sometimes I find myself thinking it's dependent on me. Man, that's a hard place to be. I find myself guilty of expecting far too much from a single sermon or a series of sermons, treating God like he's a recipe or a science experiment. I put in all the right ingredients and bing! I get out what I expected to get out. But I'm realizing as I'm expecting too much from a single sermon or a series of sermon, I find myself sometimes expecting far too little from a life spent and a life invested faithfully, faithfully in a hard, plodding work without daily visual feedback, occasional, but without daily I pray for the steadiness to be fueled by faith as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. I pray that for you too. For faithfulness, if none go with you. For faithfulness that God's always at work. For faithfulness, if y'all are Corinthians or Bereans, to be as faithful either way. I'm finding as I'm about to work, week in, week out of preaching, week in, week out of counseling, shepherding a family, myself on top of all that, week in, week out, walking with other people, as I'm dealing with the vexation of it, the anger of it, the difficulty of it, the frustrations of it, the deep down desire for the finishing of it, the confusion of it, I find that only one single thing gives me sustained encouragement. As I know that the work is never finished and never really done, and it's plotting and it's toiling and tending, the only thing I find that gives me real encouragement is going back to and enjoying the finished work of Christ. That's it. You say, that's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. But in it, I have it all. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? As you're about to hard work of toiling with your kids or your spouse or yourself or each other? Our life. Our work. Is that your rock? Do you go back and grab the only thing you can knowing that in it you have it all? Man. Christian Hass shared an illustration with me a few weeks ago. The youth were over at our house having a little uh, swim party, and Christian was sharing about her pool. Was she here today? I don't want to embarrass her. Huh? Nursery. Sir. Good. I-, I can talk about everybody that's not here today. I like that. She shared an illustration of her pool, how she's constantly cleaning her pool. And just about time where she finally gets the last leaf out or the last blade of grass and she turns to go put the little scooper back up. She turns around and there's another one. And she said that was like a reminder for me that that's my life. If I think for a moment I've got it all tidied up, I go back and look at it and no. <laughs> there's more grass. More leaves. And man, that's fuel when you realize that we don't wear our own righteousness. We wear an alien righteousness. Our pool is reckoned, cleaned. <laughs> that's all I've got. And in that, I've got it all. We're reckoned, cleaned. Man, that's fuel for the work right there. I bought Daniel a Hexbug Habitat yesterday. Him not going to the beach, or his not going—my get my grammar straight. His not going to the beach. Kind of felt like, man, I want to kind of have a cool time with Daniel. You know, man time, Wrangler time. We'll be real men, do man things. And so we went to Radio Shack and bought batteries for those little watch battery kind of things. They're just in certain items that you just—you don't get anywhere. You have to go to Radio Shack to get them. And in that place, we saw a hex bug habitat. It's bad to the bone. <laughs> this thing is amazing. It has a handle and folds up. So you can, it's portable. You can carry it around. And it came with a hex bug. And Daniel talked me into buying an additional hex bug. <laughs> so, and it was on sale. So we left there with all of the right things in place. I mean, we had the hex bug habitat. We had the hex bug, the white one with the orange dot, and then we had the additional one that he bought that's black with green, no. Gray with black, yes, and we're like, man, score, and I'm like, he's going to be occupied with that for the rest of our time here, I won't even see him. Not that I was going for that. I promise I'm not going for that. That would be contrary to what I was saying about enjoying my children. Yes. I would not. Wow. All right. I wasn't going for that, I promise. So, anyway, yesterday we went to the Y to swim, and I needed another battery that I forgot. So he said, can we, so I said, I need to go. He said, are you going back to the place where you buy batteries? He said, can we get another hex bug? And I said, seriously, son, I bought you the habitat with an additional hex bug. You had two hex bugs. And he said, yeah, but I'm just imagining how awesome it would be to have three of them jumping around there and there. And he's begging me for this third one. And I almost did an experiment to see how many hex bugs would truly satisfy And I realized I didn't have enough money, (laughs) and I realized that the Radio Shack probably doesn't have enough in stock to truly satisfy the human heart. And I thought, Lord, what is it like when our prayers are constantly asking, asking, asking for so many more things and so seldom enjoying this massive habitat of the cross that he's already achieved and won for us. How much of your family prayer life, how much of your prayer life is taken up with true enjoyment, true declaration, God, you are great, If you never give me another thing and the rest of my life is spent toiling and laboring at the most difficult things in the world, that's fine because what you've already given me is enough. Sure, I'll share the prayer, but it's in the context of the cross, is already enough. Man, how much of our prayer time is made up of proclaiming, exhaling in what he's already given us, marveling at what he's given us, and wondering why grace should reach so low. The only work, the only fuel that I find for this work is the only true finished work. I was trying to think about why I'm not sometimes prepared for the work. And I think that maybe it's because we're coming at faith the wrong way. Sometimes maybe we're coming at faith the way, not the way he intended us to come at it. If he's just the divine fixer, if he's just there to make things easier for us or not, or we can see it different, if though he's wanting to have a relationship with his creatures, then what better way to bring us into relationship with him than through toil, and labor, and work, and need... This last passage I'll share with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That sounds like vexing type of work right there. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but that vexing work, that affliction was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I need the work. I need the toil. If affliction is the escort to dependence on God, then work and toil and difficulty is an escort to relationship. Not getting this would be like having children and then overnight wanting them to be grown with a job, living in their home. Overnight, just wanting to fast forward. I just want to fast forward through all their childhood years, through all the hex bug trips to the store. I want to fast forward through all of that and just get to the point. It's missing. It's about the relationships. It's missing, it's about the dailiness of the grind. It's in the grind that I get to know that boy right there. And it's in the grind that he gets to know me. It's in the grind that we get to know our God. Who on their wedding day when they say I do wants to fast forward to year 50 anniversary? Who wants that? It's about the grind and the work in getting there. Faith isn't about making an agreement with God and wanting to fast forward to heaven and pining for a problem-free life between now and then. The work and the difficulty is the soil of our relationship with Him. We can and should find enjoyment in it. Christian, Christian and I had a hard time seeing Luke eat it over and over and over again. I had a hard time seeing Scott McCullough walk around those hills, and I thought, you know, in some ways, they're metaphor of our faith—feeble, frail, dependent. Plotting, bruised, but pressing on. Man, I want that in me. I want that in you. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for the work. We're so thankful that our lives are not designed to be idle existence, but that you have things, opportunities, occasions. You have good works prepared in advance for us to do. And I'm so thankful that it's work. I'm so thankful that you've given me an opportunity personally to walk with people, and to enjoy just how funny people are. Lord, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the people of God. Lord, I'm thankful for the only thing that really fuels us in this work that's consistent, that in it we have it all, in the in your son seated and reigning and ruling. Lord, I pray that we can be characterized as a church that have our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.